Welcome to Spark Science, where we share stories of human curiosity. I'm your host, Regina Barber de Graff, an astrophysicist and pop culture enthusiast. This is our season five Geek Girl Con episode. For our new listeners, what is Geek Girl Con? Geek Girl Con is a comic book convention with a mission to celebrate geek culture and all aspects of female identity. It's held annually at the Seattle Convention Center and Spark Science has been covering it for the last four years. At this convention, you'll find discussion panels on comics, movies, books, and even social identity. There are activities that help girls learn all sorts of games, including video, board, role-playing, and one of the coolest things at this convention is a whole floor dedicated to science. This whole floor dedicated to science is called the DIY Science Zone, and it was created by famed science communicator, Dr. Rachel Burks. Check out her interview in season four. There are about a dozen hands-on booths run by women scientists, engineers, and mathematicians. We had the honor of interviewing a few of these amazing scholars, including Dr. Danielle Lee, who studies giant pouch rats in Tanzania. Yes, I know it sounds super cool and slightly scary. Oh, and by the way, in this episode, we also mentioned SACNIS, which is the largest national organization dedicated to promoting racial and ethnic inclusion in STEM, STEM being science, technology, engineering, and math. Individuals deeply involved in this organization are called SACNistas. We visit the SACNIS National Convention every year, so stay tuned for those episodes later this season. Now on to our first interview at Geek Girl Con with Dr. Danielle Lee. GirlCon with a fellow SACNista and famed science communicator. And I'm going to let you say your full name or whatever name you want to say because I butcher names. I am Danielle N. Lee, but online most people know me as D.N. Lee 5. And so I follow you on Twitter. You have a lot, a lot of following. You say amazing things. But you're here at Geek Girl Con. Is this the first time you've been here? No. So I, the do-it-yourself zone started in 2012 and I was here that first year. This is my fourth time. Tell me a little bit about your science and the booth we have here and then we're going to get right into other intense things. Okay, so I'm a mammologist, a zoologist who studies mammals and I study the behavior of rodents, nuisance rodents across urban gradients. Essentially I do the scientific study of city mouse and country mouse on field mice here in the states and I also study giant pouch rats in Tanzania. You can't, this is all audio, so you can't see my eyes got like super big when she's like, pouch rats, Tanzania. Tell me more about these pouch rats. So they're really big. So they're about two and a half, three feet long from nose to tip of tail. They weigh, they can weigh up to, I'm so used to thinking in kgs, they can weigh up to about a kilogram to two kilograms. So that's about two to five pounds. Uh, And it's, it's a big rat from nose to tip of tail. They're really popular because they discovered they could be successfully trained to detect tuberculosis and landmines. Okay, before we go any further, just keep that picture in mind. A giant two to five pound rat that's being trained to detect landmines. To find out more about why this is even necessary, here is a clip from Dr. Danielle Lee's 2016 TED Talk. An estimated 15 to 20,000 people are killed or maimed by landmines each year. Landmines prevent construction of homes, roads, schools, and hospitals. Formerly war-torn parts of Africa and Asia feel the impact especially hard because landmines deny access to farmland for some of the neediest populations. A perfect yet unlikely hero in this story is the African giant pouched rat. 
Native to Sub-Sahara Africa, the pouched rat is adapted to the ecological conditions of the areas it's likely to be used. They're relatively easy to care for. They'll eat almost anything, and they live up to eight years. In 2000, an NGO named Apopo began training pouched rats in Tanzania to detect landmines. In neighboring Mozambique, Apopo has discovered and destroyed 2,400 landmines, returning over 6 million square meters of land to the country. So now that we know that landmines on agricultural land is a huge problem, let's find out more about the giant pouch rat's role as a mine detector. Tell me more about why they can possibly detect tuberculosis and landmines. First of all, rats just rats and rodents, but rats in general, have a great sense of smell. Like if you could do whatever that fancy little anatomy thing where you can redraw their body based on their neurons, they would be just like a big giant nose. Like they have a lot of just great neuron olfactory neurons. They're great at smelling. Many animals are capable of training. So basic operant conditioning, which is positive reinforcement, is what they use to train juvenile, captive bred, pouched rats, and they train them on the odor cue. For those detecting landmines, they train them to detect TNT. Those for uh, tuberculosis detection, they train them on positive sputum samples. So that's how you get it diagnosed. So they people kind of do the <laughs> into a little test tube, and then they send it to the doctor. And then the lab, literally, the traditional way, they, they smear it on a slide and yeah. they look under the microscope and they just go scan by scan by scan looking for the bacterium. That takes a long time. Yeah. And in nations like Tanzania and their neighboring nations, uh, like Mozambique, uh, you know, to run microscopes, they got to have light. You got to have a lot of skilled technicians. And you're under the gun because tuberculosis can spread faster than you can the time you take to look, look it under the microscope. Yeah. You line up samples in a row and they run them in a runway and then they attend to the one that smells positive and it saves countless hours of time people looking for samples and at least gets rid of the negatives. So that way the lab technicians can just spend their time looking at the ones that cleared the first pre-screening. That is the coolest thing I've ever heard. And it doesn't require electricity, which in in that part of the world, because you're just running them through a little runway. Right. Blackouts and brownouts happen all the time. So you lose a lot of precious lab time. That's one of the things I've learned working in a developing nation. Basic infrastructure is what makes the West successful. I've been to Tanzania for oh, like... Oh, you have? Yes. Awesome. In 2004. <laughs> all, I, all I know is Gina means name. Yes. And my, my name is Gina. So... They got confused. It was like who's on first for like 10 minutes. And yeah, my friend's it's speaking Swahili because she's in the Peace Corps. She's like getting the tickets and she's they're like, we need the names. And she's like, okay, it's Kate. And they're like, Kate. Jake. Jake. And then they're like, Gina, and they're like, yeah, what's the name? And she's like, it's Gina. No, what's the name? And it went on forever, and then she's like, it's just Gina. So they wrote down Justin just Gina. Gina. Your name is just Gina? <laughs> my Tanzanian name is Daniela. Yeah. No matter what I tell them, my name is Daniela. I love working there. I plan on going back next year. That's still part of my regular uh, research. So my goal is to go at least every other year and eventually start taking students for like the study abroad program. 
How many students do you take? How's What's that process so like? So I'm learning it myself as a new faculty member. So most of those kind of field studies, study abroads, they like to take around 12 students. I've heard stories yeah. of bringing students and just kind of them not knowing the subject isn't like the biggest problem. It's not knowing the culture and not really being prepared for that. Yeah, no, that's something I thought about there too. But when I was in Tanzania this last time, one of my local hosts actually knows the author of a book who was a Tanzanian who lived in America for a while and specifically was talking about, you know, what it means to be black. And like and so his book was directed for Americans, but with a special note for black Americans, right. like understanding like that that difference. So there will be texts that they have to read to be culturally prepared. So at our universities you pretty much have to list a study abroad course a whole year or more out. Mm -hmm to attract students and to fundraise and so they're gonna have to do at least some very very like rudimentary Swahili. That's the great thing about Tanzania. They are amazingly polite and patient. But even in my courses, like when I teach mammalogy, in my syllabus, I'm like, I'm a decolonizing scholar. So I'm going to teach you this stuff and we're going to deconstruct this stuff. You know, even though I'm still working through it, you know, when I talk about things like the old white guy rules, like, you know, the Bergmans and the Golgers. You know, so I'm like, why do we name these things after these guys? Why are they the fathers of natural history? These natural history museums with these specimens all over the world, permits did not exist then. So how did they get it and how did they take it? And so I make them think through it. I'm like, they were, I'm like yeah, they just took it. Yeah. And even our naming, they just gave it a name. These things had names before they got there. So one of the things I've decided to do the next time I teach mammalogy is they have to learn common names. You should know the indigenous common names of those animals. So when I was in Tanzania the last time, I was getting common names of a lot of animals that I talk about in my class anyway, like the local primates in particular. So like, that's what they call this animal, that's its name. You gotta recognize that people lived here. People had a history with these plants and animals. And we're learning evolution. We should be thinking of narratives of like, oh, how did these, how did these things live? The landscape we talk about when we say we were gonna return something to a natural state, and folks like, well, before people, I'm like, uh-uh. There were people here, and they were living with animals in ways that we would not describe by our language today as conflict. Like, yeah, there's always been human-animal conflict, but the way we describe human-animal conflict today is a result of modernity. There's plenty of indigenous cultures that live in concert with wild animals. In Tanzania this last time, I'm looking for new sites and I'm down by Selu National Park and I met with this really old gentleman, Zay um, Benedict. And he lives in, you know, a makeshift house. Like, and he's like, yeah, lions come back here, rhinos. And I'm just like, I'm sorry, what? He's like, <laughs> like he's like that footpath, that stairs. They asked him, are you afraid? He's like, no, we're old fellows. I believe him. He's like, elephants and lions come through here daily. I keep a little fire burning outside. Just a little, just a little fire, like no bigger than could light up a little pot. That's his method. He's like, but we're old fellows. He was 90 something years old. We'll be right back with more Spark Science and Dr. Daniel Lee. Welcome back to Spark Science. In this episode, we are at Geek Girl Con, a conference focused on all things geek. 
Science history is something that many classes gloss over. It's hard to face the sad, the hurtful, and even the grotesque actions that result in data and methods commonly used in science today. But decolonizing science curriculum means teaching science from other perspectives, not just from those who colonized. Here's some of what mammologist Dr. Danielle Lee had to say about her efforts to share other science perspectives. Give an example of decolonizing science that you've done or that you've heard maybe in another field as well. So one example that really, before I had the vocabulary and language for it, but it truly was decolonizing is the work by Jarita Holbrook. So Dr. Holbrook in, in I think in your field, astrophysics. Okay. So she, um, I don't know exactly what she studies, but more lately she's focusing on filmmaking. So she does a lot of documentary women of color and black women specifically in physics and astronomy. Awesome. But she started spending time with different groups or tribes in Southern Africa, so South Africa and some of those little neighboring small countries, and learning astronomy from them. So these are countries that have thousand plus year astronomy history where they name constellations and all this other stuff. And so looking at astronomy from a different perspective right. where they actually had constellations and they talk about you know physics, African physics, African astronomy. So that was my first awakening to it. Yeah. Um, and then how I try to do that in my classes is that I remind them that a lot of natural history has been always for empire making. Like, if you look at most of the specimen in the American Museum of Natural History, that was, it was Miriam and Simpson. Those were all railroad surveys. Mm. They did a lot of that stuff because they were railroad surveys. Charles Darwin, he was riding in a Navy vessel. Mm -hmm. That was empire building because they were scouting out other places to live. The natural history that he learned, he didn't go there uh, as a clean slate. He had gotten natural history lessons of South American flora and fauna from, what's his name, um, Edmonston. Uh, and he was a freed slave in British Guyana. Oh. Who had taught him taxidermy. That's how he learned bird taxidermy. From a freed John, slave. John Edmonstone. Yeah, from a freed slave in British Guyana. He was there documenting because the British, it, British Empire was empire building. First it was the missionary and then the military and the mercantiles, then natural history. They rode the same routes. Science colonialism is real. The science we do is from a very colonialist perspective, imperialist perspective. And so just rec recognizing that, like what we call the science, the objective science, isn't objective at all. It definitely came from a particular perspective and viewpoint and it has a lot of presumptions of who gets to ask the questions, what makes a question good enough, what discounts. And anthropology has taught me a lot. Just listening to the story, particularly of indigenous uh, scholars from the Americas, like all that stuff in what's called physical anthropology, they literally were just, they were killing people and putting parts of their bodies in museums. When like you actually people, these that's are pe a little, we're that's talking a little, about people. Yeah. And these are things you don't know because we clean that part of it up. We don't talk about that part of it. And now, you know, we're 100, 200 years away from that stuff. We just be like, oh, look at this knowledge we just magically have. No, we don't magically have. There's been a lot of collateral damage in all the sciences, a lot of it. At the very least, by bringing all of it to four, at the very least, we should be more ethical. Yeah, in all of it. And, and I mean that even working with animals. 
uh, and working in the environment. Like there is a there is a better way to do science. There's a more than one way to human, and we got plenty of good examples in history and contemporary times of different groups of people who have found a ways to live together and use resources without gutting it all. Why can't we human like that? And that, and a lot of that I actually got in Tanzania. Humanity-wise, we can learn a lot of lessons from how people interact with one another in Tanzania and take care of each other. Uh, or just don't do bad things to each other for the sake of earning money. Yeah. There's so much talk about like, maybe somebody comes up to you and they say, oh, tell me about what it's like to be a woman in STEM. You know, it's very surface level yeah. questions, right? So like, how do you help your students navigate that world? How do you get all this stuff when the questions in majority society and your academia and like pop culture, it's very surface level questions. It is. Um, if they ask me, I, I, usually I broach it like, do you really want to know? Like, like, do you want this superficial answer or do you want a real answer? Because if you only want a superficial one, I'm happy to be like, well, talk to that person who will give you that. Or you already know the answer. Like, why are you asking me the same thing that you know? How I face it is that I thought about how I wanted to set my lab up. And I have, you know, four principles that I train students and I take into the classroom. In other words, I do ecology and behavior science, but I also focus on engagement and justice. Like, all four of those things are simultaneously important. There is no hierarchy. You know, there is no good data if you're not ethical. There is no good science if everyone who participates in a science doesn't have the opportunity to benefit from it yeah. or to reap the benefits of it. Like this idea of... Or doesn't feel like they can be themselves. Be themselves. So, you know, I'm challenging exploitation. I'm, you know, I'm calling it what it is instead of saying, oh, that's just a normal relationship. No, I get that that's what's common between trainees and PIs in many contexts, but that's not normal. Like, we, exploitation leads, bad behavior leads to bad data. I just believe that. Like if, because it's corrupting. If you do one thing corrupting in your praxis, then all the rest of your practice in science is suspect. If, you're, if, if you are willing to use people or to lie about paying people well, I don't believe you'll be honest in your data reporting or your statistical analysis. Like one type of honesty, predicts another in my opinion and so I look at that and if you've never thought about that I think you should face that but I'm willing to give you space to go no 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 you can't say you don't know anymore mm -hmm. there's no reason for treating people in the environment crappy anymore before you had to pretend you're a white male and now the only other option is now you have to pretend you're a white female yeah well, this is the thing so I've been very good at code switching I, I was trained to do that because that was essential but no one has ever, ever let me forget that I'm not, I'm not what I'm supposed to be, whatever that is. And I'm not saying every single person has done that to me, but I've never been in a space in science ever where I have not been reminded I'm an exception. Not because I'm exceptional, but because of the package of who I am. I'm too loud, I take up too much space, or I'm too this. It's like the only thing, like literally the only thing that'll make you happy is if I just disappear. And the only way I'm acceptable is if you get to take credit for what I do, but, and then go back to being quiet and hiding away. And that's not okay.
That's not even a black woman or a woman of color thing. They do that to white women. They do that to white men who come from the wrong side of the tracks or come from the wrong families. That's, that's the problem of hierarchical thinking that is informed by old school colonialist, you know, thinking. Like, that's, that's the inheritance of it. And so, so I'm like, so it can't be right. Too many questions have either been ignored or stolen from the people who really did the work. The science we have is probably a fraction of what we could have had if we had been better people. So everything you just said, I think, <laughs> was so refreshing because I think about these things a lot too. But I don't want to end on a downer. I want to okay. go, up. <laughs> so, okay, let's go so, up. So what I'm going to say to go up is that there's some resistance to that. There are people out there that are hungry, hungry for this other non-stereotypical version of a scientist, yeah. right? So do you see that? Do you see like, I don't know, do you want to name like anything else you're seeing that is trying to counteract that, you know, that realism in the history oh, of science? Oh no, I see that. I see folks are hungry for it. I think especially in events like this at Geek Girl Con, uh, people bringing their, their young children, their daughters especially to this event. The, you know, the avatar for the zone is, you know, Dr. May, you know, based on Dr. May Jemison. And, you know, she's this very, you know, adorable young, you know, obviously African-American young woman with big Afro puffs. And seeing these young girls, like, literally run up to the avatar and smile and take pictures with it. I, yes, I see a lot of that pushback. I see a lot of that in just parents and teachers. And I see audiences. I, that's what I really see. I see is the non-science audiences that are hungry for authenticity, mm -hmm. uh, for someone to connect to them, um, to say, yeah, of course you can do this too. And you don't have to turn yourself inside out and change to finally do this science. You can do it right now. And here are all these examples of people in history and contemporary times who are doing it. I choose to start at least imagining a different world and start working toward one that's better. But it means imagining one first. That's a beautiful line. <laughs> and, uh, thank you, thank thank you, you so you. much for talking to thank me. Thank you. You've thank been you. awesome. Oh, thanks. We'd like to thank Dr. Lee for taking the time from her busy DIY booth to talk to us. If you'd like to learn more about her research, watch the rest of her TED Talk titled Finding Landmines Using Pouched Rats from December 2016 or follow her on Twitter at DNLEE5. If you'd like to learn more about Geek Girl Con, check out their website, geekgirlcon.com. Spark Science is sponsored by WWU and created in partnership with KMRE. Spark Science is recorded on location and in Bellingham, Washington at Western Washington University. The producers are Suzanne Blaze, Regina Barbara DeGraff, and Robert Clark. Student editors are Julia Thorpe, Andrew Norton, and Sarah Coakley. Additional editing is done by WWU Video Services. If there's a science idea you're curious about, post a message on our Facebook page or tweet us at SparkScienceNow. Thanks for joining us, and if you want to listen to past episodes, visit SparkScienceNow.com.